So I want to spend some time speaking about the remaining uh, insights, knowledges to be realized in order to attain the first stage of an awakening. And we last spoke about the uh, dukkha jnanas. And I want to uh, clarify something. That when I say dukkha jnanas, dukkha means dukkha, pain, insecurity, oppression, instability. And jnana means knowledge. So what we're actually learning with this, uh, in these subtle stages of dukkha jnanas, is we're, we're seeing the characteristic of dukkha more clearly. And we're learning that this is the characteristic of all phenomena. But we're, we're and while we may be uh, uh, disillusioned, and we may have this kind of fearful reaction to, or avoidance of, uh, wanting to avoid uh, experiences that have this characteristic, we're not talking about aversion. Disillusionment is not aversion. And this kind of knowledge is knowledge, but not, it's not aversive to the experience. So one, one, uh, one way of understanding this disillusionment and the feeling that it brings about, uh, I read a description of, uh, from Andy Olensky, uh, formerly of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and he said, now imagine that there's a bone in a dog. And the dog sees this bone and knows that bones are good to chew on. And the dog goes running up to this bone and grabs onto this bone to get the goodies out of this bone. But then the dog realizes, oh, that bone's been laying out there in the sun in the rain for a year. And there's nothing left. There's nothing, there's no more, there's no more goodies to it. It's just this, bleached out bone that has no essence or no substance or nothing of interest to that dog. Do you think that dog is going to be interested in that bone? No. Do you think the dog is going to be angry at the bone? No. The dog is just going to lose complete interest in the bone. Right? Just totally disillusioned. That bone is not what he thought it would be or he or she thought it would be. So, this understanding of, oh, it's just a bleached out bone. Huh. Well, you can just walk away from it. Not out of anger or frustration or disappointment or anything. It's just, well, it wasn't what I thought. That's the knowledge that, knowledge similar to that is what results from navigating the dukkhanyanas. It's like we... We see life's experience, we experience life's experiences, and we say, huh, you know what? It's not what I thought. It's kind of a bleached out old bone. Now, that's not aversion. We're not saying that's bad, got to get rid of it, or somebody's to blame for it, or, or anything like that. We're just saying, huh, it doesn't hold the fascination for me as it might have, or as it formerly did. And now our understanding is such that we look at the experiences of life 
and we say, huh, well, we still have to experience the experiences of life. So we don't want to be averse to it, but we're also not fascinated, we're not deluded, we're not enchanted, we're no longer under the illusion that it's going to provide some great meal of satisfaction. We just let it be. And we don't establish a relationship of aversion or attachment to anything. But in the process of seeing this condition, we can feel at times a lot of uh, frustration, disappointment, you know, our expectations aren't being met and, and we, we don't know what the alternative is, right? I mean, if that's what you're seeing, bleached bones everywhere, huh, okay, now what? Huh? So navigating this, these dukkhanyanas is, is coming to see, you know, the bleached boneness of life's experiences, if you will. And uh, formerly the word was translated as disgust. But disgust has got this kind of feeling. It's not, that's not what the, do- the dog is doing. The dog is not saying, it's, like, it's not disgust like that. It's just like disinterest. Drop that bone. Just walk away. So this is something to be clear. When we're talking about the Dukkhanyanas, we're not talking about you know, excruciating pain. Yeah, there's discomfort. We're not talking about you know, just really emotional pain. We're not talking about that kind of you know, fear and you know, oppression. We're talking about huh, you know, being disenchanted, being disillusioned. And in that sense, this understanding or this knowledge is wisdom. It's not aversion. It's wisdom. It's, it's growing in understanding. It's maturing your understanding of the dukkha characteristic of phenomena. And the, the Buddha said that the first noble truth is to be investigated. The truth of dukkha is, be, is to be investigated because we don't see the first noble truth. We are... We spend our life avoiding as much pain, as much insecurity, as much vulnerability, as much oppression as we can. Right? We still do. I mean, we don't want to experience that. And so we, we try to get away from it. We you know, keep ourselves busy and we self-medicate and we don't look and we're in denial. We avoid, we minimize, we do anything except to acknowledge. This is really not very satisfying. <laughs> okay? So, remember earlier in the talk, I spoke about the three grades of suffering. There's the transgressive suffering that we act out and, uh, you know, hurt ourselves and others. And if we practice the precepts, we purify our intention before speaking and acting. And this is purification of mind, which prevents acting out the transgressive level of these forms of suffering. And then the second gradient or form or degree of suffering is when we're obsessing. When the mind is obsessed with, you know, desire and fear and jealousy and envy and that whole package. And when we are able to be mindful in an ongoing way of these experiences when they arise, 
then we're not entangled in them. And we develop this awareness, this continuity of awareness of them, which is samadhi, or it is the mind secluded from the obsessions. The mind may be aware of obsessions, but the mind itself is not obsessed or invaded by those obsessions. Okay. So this is the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path. The third training of the Eightfold uh, Path is insight, vipassana. And what I'm talking about now in this dukkha jnanas is we are purifying our understanding. You know, the first practice purifies our speech and behavior, our intentions. The second practice purifies our mind momentarily, temporarily, or in an ongoing way. But the third training of Vipassana purifies our understanding. Because formerly, we would look at these experiences of life and say, wow, yeah, hey, I want it, it's good, it's going to be satisfying, it's pleasant, it's really going to enhance my life. Now, we, with this dukkha jnanas, once we've acquired this knowledge, once we've not just read it and believed it, but I mean we've experienced it empirically, now we know that, huh, you know what? I don't think that's going to be quite as satisfying, not quite as enjoyable, it doesn't enchant me quite as much. And our understanding of experience being satisfactory, being uh, enduring and permanent and maybe stable, something to rely on, and being something that we can create and will enhance ourselves and we can enjoy at will. Now we understand none of that's true. So this insight into dukkha, it's not just dukkha, it's insight into anicca and anatta also, but it's, it's through the doorway of dukkha that we see Wow, you know what? There isn't anything that's going to be that stable, no matter what. There isn't anything that's going to be that satisfying. There isn't anything that's going to be that amenable to my own control. I can't call it up and enjoy it for as long as I want and then put it aside. Because things don't have that capacity. They're bleached bones. They're like bleached bones. So we go, wow. And not only that, remember I talked about the dissolution where the sense of oneself being enduring from moment to moment with this awareness or this, some people like to think of it as, as the observer that is there every moment to observe. You know, We've now seen through the illusion of the continuity of that. So not only are objects not desirable, there is no one, no substantial one, to desire them or to enjoy them or to pursue them. Okay. Where does this leave us? It leaves us, for the first time, beginning to understand what the end of suffering might be like. And that would be the end of all that. So we go, if things aren't going to do it, and this observer isn't it, then, and they're, and they're unstable, and they're suffering, and they're, they're unsatisfactory, and they're, they're not reliable, then 
and they all have this quality of dukkha, suffering, then what? what's left? The end of suffering would be the end of all that. Right? And this is, I'm trying to use a little bit of logic just to point to how, what our mind does. Our mind is saying, I don't know. I don't see anything that's kind of worth pursuing or hanging on to, and I'm not really very stable myself. <laughs> and so it's like, who do I think I am? Anyway, pursuing what? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm making fun of it, but uh, actually it's kind of a, there's a, there's a shift in, in understanding. And it, it comes when what is called the knowledge for the desire for, of deliverance, for deliverance. And that's the number, um, number nine, Vipassana knowledge of desire for deliverance. That means this idea arises in our mind. I would like to be free of all this dukkha. All this dukkha that we see, I'd like to be free of that. And it arises in the mind. Of course, we, don't, we have no idea what that means. What the, what, is that an experience? Is that a knowledge? Is this even possible? What, we don't know. But the mind is, is seeing that what I've known up till now doesn't, doesn't do it. So there must be something else. And if you have read of the Buddha's teachings or if you have a teacher that's skillful enough, uh, they will point to the end of suffering as possible. Third noble truth, the Buddha said, the end of, the, uh, the end of uh, craving uh, leads to the end of suffering, the end of dukkha. It's possible. Okay, so you've got these things. Here's everything I know, and here's what the Buddha said. So you keep practicing with this, um, with this emerging uh, desire to be free of, of this dukkha. This isn't a desire like chocolate and sex and music and <laughs> rock and roll. It's this aspiration to, uh, of the heart to be free. At this point, uh, while the dukkha has been unpleasant enough, now the body becomes really uncomfortable. The mind is really just agitated. The mind really wants to get out of this mess. And the body becomes really un, 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 intolerable. You can't stand. It's just, it just feels oppressed. The body feels oppressed with heat and itching. And uh, you want to change your posture all the time. You can't, you can't sit for two minutes before you want to stand up. And you want to stand, as soon as you stand up, you want to sit down or you want to lay down. And you're just, you're just very fidgety, uh, physically, mentally. And it's just uh, not, com- not pleasant, not comfortable. And yet you know, you already know, you've reaffirmed to yourself that in every moment, something's being known, something's being known. And eventually we, we reconnect with that understanding and we, 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 we begin to practice with that understanding again. No matter what it is, something is being known. But before we arrive at that confirmed understanding and a resolve in the mind to keep doing that, this is the third rolling up the mat stage where, you know, we've been through a lot, all the spiritual goodies, we've really spent a lot of time with a a really balanced mind, very clear uh, experiences of arising and passing away, mature arising and passing away, where all the spiritual goodies are there but you're not indulging in them. 
and we've been through the knowledge of disenchantment and dukkha and uh, things are just not satisfying and uh, now it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. You know, the body is just really intolerable and uh, we don't know where we're going and we don't know what's happening. I mean, we know what's happening in a moment to moment because the mindfulness is steady. I mean, the mindfulness is continuous. There's hardly any breaks. And yet, it's really unbearable. And so, again, we want to... Um, we feel very dissatisfied or unsatisfied with our practice. Our sense of ourself is equally dispersed. Objects are unclear. Um, sometimes we think that our practice is no good. Um, but really, we can't, we can't find objects to be aware of. And sometimes we just sit there kind of in a stupor, seemingly like a stupor, not noticing anything, just kind of spacing because the objects are so dissolved, really, and the observing is also dissolved. Uh, so actually, one of the instructions that you'll get at this point of practice is that you have to make your mind work harder at recognizing experience. And so you force your mind to go to and feel different sensations in the body, at the knee here, at the knee there, and the shoulder here, and the shoulder there, to keep objects as clear as possible, so that you can keep the continuity of the awareness going. If you just sit with a kind of a very diffuse objects, your mindfulness is going to falter. You're going to lose the continuity of your mindfulness, and you'll be just in a la-la land, kind of spacing in, spacing out, very calm, uh, but in very not distinct objects, no great reactions, but it's not satisfying. So you actually have to make the mind work harder. Counterintuitive. Counterindicated. Nobody would think that you're supposed to try harder at this point. But that's what's needed, actually. But if we keep just in a steady way, Noticing what we can, recognizing it's being known, whatever's happening, and without reacting, gradually, in moment by moment, the equanimity gets stronger. And equanimity is the non-reactivity of the mind, where the mind doesn't react to um, anything. It doesn't react to what is being experienced. It doesn't react to, react to how, what we think about it or what we feel about it. It just is able to know and see clearly. This is, this is the way it is. So equanimity is, this is the, um, let's see, the Vipassana knowledge of reobservation is when you, you make the decision, really, to just know. Just notice what you can, moment to moment. And then we arrive at the number 11, the Vipassana knowledge of equanimity towards phenomena. And this is... Uh, realized or the practice to bring about this kind of equanimity uh, requires that you sit with this level of discomfort uh, that you're experiencing at uh, reobservation, uh, where you want to change your posture every 30 seconds. You have to sit with that. You have to sit through it and, and not move. And you have to sit longer and longer. So that if you're sitting an hour, you have to start sitting an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half, hour and two and three quarters, two hours. And you have to sustain the continuity from sitting to walking, sitting to walking. 
because if there's any break in the uh, continuity of awareness, then you'll lose your equanimity and you'll be back in this, you know, agitated, you know, state of mind where you're reacting to phenomena, where you have a, where you have a liking or disliking or judgment about it. So as you, as the equanimity, as the continuity becomes stronger and longer, then you're able to, uh, gradually all of the uh, spiritual goodies will return, but you're not indulging in them because you have a lot of equanimity now. So as pleasant as it gets, as rapturous as it gets, as effortless as it gets, as clear, as precise, no matter how strong your faith and confidence is, you don't get, in, you don't get uh, kind of, uh, enchanted by it. So there's no pleasure and there's no pain in this, ex- in this experience. So you're just uh, kind of left with seeing things as they are, not reacting to them. All of the, uh, gradually as the, con- as the equanimity gets stronger, all of the discomfort in the body uh, leaves. The body's no longer painful, it's not stiff, it's not hot, it's not itchy, it's not, you don't want to shift your postures. And gradually you just settle into being completely at ease with everything, for as long as you want. And it's said that there's no discomfort, no pain, and no happiness. And when this, when this uh, equanimity is really strong, the mind is very pure meaning there's just no, no contaminants, no, no defilements get, um, get a chance to arise. And the feeling of well-being is supreme. You just feel like things are really good. And the mind is very straight, or it's very clear. It doesn't, it doesn't waver, it doesn't wobble, it doesn't, it doesn't misunderstand what is being experienced. It's very uh, cleanly. And they says there's six qualities to this kind of equanimity. And the first is that there's no fear and there's no delight, no matter what. No fear and no delight. The second is that there's whatever pain or pleasure there is, is seen with equanimity. So that uh, there's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no suffering. And frankly, the, the experience of pain or or Anything less than uh, anything towards the unpleasant is almost nil. Effort is is completely uh, effortless. I mean, you don't have to make any effort at all. You just have to keep watching. If you if you if you choose not to watch, then your effort will flag. But as long as you're just interested to watch, uh, your energy is effortless. And the the longer you sit, the longer you can sit. Or I should say, the longer you can extend the continuity of, of awareness for hours, for hours and hours, you can do that. And I, I've known I've known yogis, uh, students, who you know they'll sit for four or five hours, six hours, eight hours, ten hours, twelve, fifteen, eighteen hours, and the mind, the body's fine. The body doesn't get achy. The mind doesn't get upset. It just sits and can watch. Or anything that goes by in that length of time. And it's not a struggle. It's not like you're critting your teeth and bearing with it. It's just, you know, the mind is so light, the body is light, and uh, things are clear. And uh, objects and experiences become subtler and subtler. I spoke, uh, I think, Friday night 
about uh, experiencing equanimity like this, where the body was so light and so insubstantial that it was only as thick as mist. Mist. You know, it's like a fog, like vapor. That was, that was the, as much substance as the body had. So that I couldn't, at that time, I couldn't feel that I had my robes on when I was a monk. I couldn't feel clothes, I couldn't feel my feet on the ground, other than just barely sensing that I was, I was actually walk, walking on the ground. And uh, it's really quite unusual, <laughs> to say the least. But uh, the other thing about equanimity is you can't make it get interested in anything. No matter what you see or what you think about or what crosses your mind or what you hear about, you can't get interested. You can't send your mind out to, to pick it up and, and, and kind of chew on it for a while. It's like a bone, you know, a bleach bone. It's like you just, your mind just doesn't go there. So it's not like there's a struggle to let go of experience. Your, your mind won't go there even if it's a very desirable object to, to uh, get, a, get uh, in relationship with somehow. So with this uh, effortless energy and with this clear perception and this subtle experiences of the body and the mind, nothing bothers you. Okay? Nothing bothers you. But sometimes the mind is so still and the objects are so subtle that you're not aware of any objects. So it's like you only know that the mind is knowing. The mind is ready to know anything that appears, but it seems like nothing is appearing. Of course, you know the mind is there. So it's like nothing happening, but you know that there's nothing happening. And what they talk about here is the way to refine your practice at this point is to uh, recognize the five spiritual faculties, faith, and effort, mindfulness, samadhi or concentration and wisdom and if you monitor them if you keep an eye on them you'll see the varieties of experience within uh, this equanimity and whenever they get out of balance the mindfulness will recognize it really quick if there's a little too much tranquility or the energy flags a little bit your mind will know it if there's a little too much uh, faith you know without direct observation and clear wise knowing then the mind will recognize that and bring it into balance. So it's from this place where you're seeing the objects, as subtle as they are, and you're seeing the three characteristics. Not only do you know the unique quality of the experience, as subtle as it is, you also know that it's impermanent. You see that it has the dukkha characteristic. You also see that it has the anatta characteristic. Now from this place, imagine... Here's the mind, totally at ease with whatever's going on. It sees experience. It's not reaching for anything. It's not reaching because it's, it's bleached bones. You know, it's just nothing. Uh, the mind is not reaching for anything. It knows. The mind, the wisdom knows. At this point, the wisdom knows this is impermanent. Whatever it is. It knows this has the dukkha characteristic. It knows this has no substance to it. 
So the mind's completely at ease. It is from that place that the mind can fall into the unconditioned. Now that means you, you can't make it happen, you can't wish it to happen, you can't do anything to, to induce it. It's just accidental. Huh? As Trungpa Rinpoche says, enlightenment is an accident. Practice makes you accident prone. <laughs> and that's the way it is. It's like sometimes, you know, when the, when the faculties are mature and the insight is clear, then the mind might, might fall into the unconditioned. And this is a realization of Nibbana. And it's a realization that can be perceived, but it has no qualities to describe. It has no size, no shape, no color, no texture, no cognitive content, uh, it has no time, it doesn't begin, it doesn't end, it doesn't endure. There's nothing that we can talk about it. There's no way to talk about it except to say it's peaceful there. It's really peaceful. Not just calm, not just clear, it's peaceful. So Mahasi Sayadaw says of Nibbana somewhere, we think, ah yes. Nibbana is not like a splendid palace, a beautiful city, or the country. It's not like a bright light or some kind of clear, calm, mental awareness. All of these things are not unconditioned ultimate reality but their concepts or conditioned reality. In fact, Nibbana is the only unconditioned reality. It simply has the nature of the cessation called the characteristic of peacefulness. It is the cessation of the defilements and suffering. It is the non-existence of all conditioned phenomena. It is the opposite of what is conditioned which is what we've been experiencing in all of our practice. So Nibbana is other than that. And it, it says that it's difficult to describe. I don't see where it is here, but... Uh, sometimes people think that... Uh, and there is a statement that Nibbana is all luminous. But actually it doesn't mean that Nibbana is light, like a light, a bright light. There's no bright light for Nibbana. When it says that Nibbana is luminous, it means that it's unstained by any of the defilements. So in that sense, the mind or the mind is luminous and Nibbana is always luminous, meaning they have no defilement present. Uh, let me see. When one first realizes Nibbana, then one changes their whole karmic trajectory from being what is called a patujana or someone who is just living out their karma and creating more karma and just going on endlessly. Once you fall into the stream of the unconditioned, then you are on a track to end suffering. And what happens at this first realization of Nibbana is that the belief in this enduring sense of self within this mind-body process is uprooted. It's not just suppressed. It's totally uprooted from the mind. That belief will never come back. 
no matter how long you wander in samsara after that. It doesn't come back. But also, your, your doubt about how to practice or what the practice is that leads you to the end of suffering is forever removed. Now you know, this is the path. This is the way to go. There's no other way to, to uproot suffering from the mind. And you understand that. And so any rites and rituals and other beliefs that you have get uprooted with that. You have no interest in rites and rituals and cultural stuff and uh, religious stuff that uh, others might suggest are the path to freedom or liberation or whatever their goal is. Now you understand it is only through this clear understanding, clear recognition of the unconditioned that you can... Uh, uproot from your mind the wrong understandings that leads to craving. Because remember the first noble truth is is dukkha. Second noble truth is caused by craving. The craving that we have seen and the craving that we've seen through because of this, uh, the dukkha jnanas, we no longer crave. We don't crave for those things. If you don't crave, you don't pick up, you don't hold on, eventually you don't suffer anymore. Right? So this is the third noble truth that the Buddha talked about. That there is an end to uh, craving, there's an end to suffering. And we, when you realize Nibbana, then now you know for yourself, for sure. There's a, you know, there's some description of just how you enter Nibbana and all that, but I'll let you buy the book and read about that. I don't want to bore you with the details. And it's all available there in much clearer, much more detail than I can ever tell you about. So, but it's said that those who, you know, practice so that they realize the first uh, stage of enlightenment, they have, their behavior is forever changed. Uh, they, they become an area, an area. But the behavior of, of uh, there are many uh, defilements that are uprooted from the mind. The grossest defilements that can lead to um, the unpleasant realms of hell realms, animal realms, and hungry ghost realms, all of those are uprooted from the mind. So the promise is, or the guarantee is, from realizing the first uh, stage of enlightenment, is that whatever rebirth you have after this, they won't be below human realm. They'll either be human or heavenly realms. But no possibility of being born in the lower realms of suffering. Uh, you may not, you know, as, as Menindra said, you may not believe in these realms, you know, the heaven realms, the hell realms, the ghost realms, the, the animal realms. We believe in the animal realms because we can see it. Uh, he says, you may not believe in it, and, you know. It's true, but you don't, you don't have to believe it, he would say. So... Because there were those, you know, even Deepama could see, could see the, the other realms, beings in the other realms, as the Buddha could. Uh, we don't have that experience, so it's best that we don't really uh, just kind of believe it on faith. We just say, oh, maybe. But actually, if you understand what the condition of beings are in those other realms, you can see that it's our own mind. You know, our mind is in a hell realm when we're angry and caught up in a version of one sort or another. It's in the hungry ghost realm when we're caught up in desire and you know, insatiable uh, needs and wants. 
and in the animal realm when we just act out of instinct and habitual uh, routine habits uh, we our mind can be quite uh, caught in those suffering behaviors but when you when you practice enough to realize the first stage then the tendency to dwell in those states of mind is uprooted we still have plenty of we still have desires we still have a lot of aversion we still can be impatient we still can have some confusion don't worry there's still plenty of suffering that's why we have to keep practicing and the way to keep practicing is hey you know how you got the first stage do it again you have to keep doing it you have to keep practicing in the same way just noticing really something in every moment is being known you know something in every moment is being known and if you keep practicing beyond first stage with there's there's some technical stuff, but uh, if you keep practicing in that way, you can you can realize second stage, which is a, a further uh, releasing of attachment and aversion. Still have some aversion even after second stage, but at third stage, well, let me just say that the first two stages, first stage and second stage, is reliant upon your your sila, how your your, the continuity of your mindfulness and how you speak and act is sufficient to, to attain first stage and second stage. But third stage, where you uproot the aversion and uh, sensual desire, is dependent on samadhi, which is the continuity of mindfulness. So it's much more difficult to, they say, I don't know, haven't got there. They say it's much more difficult. But, Hey, even to reach first stage is pretty good. Pretty good. It's very good. <laughs> so, that's all I have to say about the progress of insight, or the process of insight, other than to say it's possible. It's not only for people at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks and nuns that live in caves their whole life. It's not. It is, the map is really clear. And it's available for anybody that wants to develop it, or anybody that wants to follow that map. You can follow it. It does take commitment. It does take a lot of energy. It does take a clear aspiration and kind of relentless effort. But think about it. If you were ever free, if you were forever freed of this belief in self and you understood the path to freedom or liberation from suffering and you ever had no more doubt about the path, ever, wouldn't it be worth a couple of weeks of retreat? A couple of months of retreat? I mean, save your lifetimes of suffering. That's, that's a good investment. Right? Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.